Good morning. Good morning. This time next week, we're going to do something a little different, and we're going to have... Uh, Tim Allen came up with this idea, and I, I just thought it was perfect. Uh, we're going to have a concert of praise. We'll have some microphones. We'll have opportunities for, well, to hear all of you. So bring your instruments next week for this concert so that we can praise the Lord together. We'll give you a minute, minute and a half or two to just come and say quickly. I know there's many things to say, but to say one thing that God has impressed upon you, done in your life, uh, a striking memory that you have of God's work in your life. That's what we'll put together as a chorus, and I think it will really praise the Lord, and I think it will really encourage each of us. If not you, it will me, so think about that this week. What would you like to share next Sunday morning, and we'll have some singing and a wonderful morning together. More details in our letter from home on, on Thursday, so give that a look. As Cameron prayed this morning, God's ways are not our ways. Our ways are not always God's ways, but that's what God desires, our ways to match his ways. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through him, said in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And speaking of that, God's prophets did some things that were very different from what we would do. In fact, they were in many ways very eccentric. Did you know, for example, that the prophet Isaiah walked about naked and barefoot prophesying for three years? Just picture that. You can read about that in Isaiah 20. Did you know that Hosea found a wife? She was a prostitute. And he married her. And they had children. And Hosea gave his children some crazy names. For example... One was named No Mercy. Or you could even translate that in the sense of unloved. And the other was called Not My People. Not My People. So if, now if you'd like to name your child one of those names like in Hebrew, well, No Mercy would be Lo Ruhamah and Not My People would be Lo Ami. Loami, it kind of got a ring to it, but it uh, has a sad, sad tale. Jeremiah, did you know that he preached to Israel and he was restrained with a slave's yoke, strapped to a slave's yoke as he preached? And did you know that Ezekiel ate a scroll 
I mean, this is reality TV at its best. Yeah, he ate a scroll. That's in chapters two and three. And then also, God had him lay on his side for 390 days. 390 days he laid on his side. And then for 40 days on the other side. That was a great relief, I'm sure. But during that time, there were other symbolic things that Ezekiel did. And one of the things was that he cooked all of his food during this time over a fire of human excrement. That's in Ezekiel chapter 4. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, people saw him preaching and prophesying over a valley of dry bones. And we're given part of his message. He kept saying, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord as he preached to the dry bones. Pretty vivid, isn't it? We think they're crazy. I'm sure the people of their day thought they were a little different, if not eccentric. But God instructed them to do these things. They weren't just crazy to begin with. They did these things because God told them to do them. Isaiah's nakedness symbolized the humiliation of Israel's hopes. Hosea's marriage symbolized Israel's adultery with foreign idols. Jeremiah's yoke signified Israel's servitude to Babylon. Ezekiel's filthy firewood previewed Israel's unclean food when they were enslaved in a foreign land. And long before the prophets, Joshua led Israel in a crazy kind of warfare one that had never been seen before. And God instructed him to do it just that way. I'd like to read Joshua chapter 6, verses 2 through 5 to you. And this is the Lord speaking. And we read, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war, for six days, going around the city once, thus shall you do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, You shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. As I picture it, 
And there's more detail, it kind of uh, loops around and adds detail as the chapter unfolds. I hope you had a chance to read it before this morning. But as I picture it, the mighty warriors are told to march in silence. And they march in silence in front of the ark of the Lord and behind the ark of the Lord. So the ark of the Lord is the focus of this kind of ceremonial procession. And during this procession, they make a lap on the first day. They make a lap on the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. It's a routine until the seventh day in which once they complete that lap, they do it again. And then again. And then again. Until they made seven laps, and seven was a hallowed, even something of a mystical number in the Mediterranean world of antiquity. And so at the end of the seventh circle of the city, the priest will blow a sustained blast, and then the troops and all the people will erupt in this enormous mass shout, and the walls will crumble and fall flat. The striking thing to me is that the Lord muzzles the people, especially the mighty warriors. That had to be a little grating, don't you think? I mean, you've just gone through this circumcision, and I mean, you're totally committed to this thing. And by the way, if you were to read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, siege is talked about. Every city, I mean, a city is a city because it has a wall. It's a walled city, which tells you something about the nature of the times. You know, sometimes when we think of nature back then, we, people just frolic together and pick flowers and everyone is happy. But that's not the picture of walled cities. And Moses speaks to the people and creates rules for sieges of cities. Cities at a distance and cities near the people. And it's quite specific. So these warriors have been trained. They know or they expect as well as know that they are going to commit to sieging the walls. And as we saw last week, where did this mysterious figure find Joshua? Near the city. And at that time I mentioned, I don't think it's outrageous for us to imagine that Joshua as a leader wants to observe and review the walls and see if there isn't a strategic weakness. So here these Men of war, they're getting hyped up. They're getting ready for this. And then Joshua comes to them and says, 
guys, it's time and this is how it's going to unfold. And uh, don't say a thing. Don't, don't say a word. I don't care how much they taunt you from the walls. Do not react. Don't, don't say a thing. That's quite a command. It's very strange because in all battles, at the charge, everybody roars. But I got to tell you, this would create a sense of ceremony that is unmatched. And in this procession, in this silence, which would be so unusual, all that you would hear would be these trumpets. The whole thing would reek of the unusual and the ceremonial and the hallowed. And I think if I was in the city of Jericho and was hearing about this or able to watch it from the walls, surely over time the entire city is in the grip of the suspense of what this means. And remember, and we heard this first in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, when Rahab told the spies that they knew about their God. They knew, they had heard And it had had a tremendous impact upon their lives, upon their hearts. In fact, Rahab says that just the strength of the people just drained out of them. Just imagine the suspense. I liken it to Ukraine. What's it like watching video of Putin's forces and the army in the thousands and thousands and thousands and the military might being amassed at your border and skirmishes and scraps across that border between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Even in the news, a a week ago, it's going to happen this coming Tuesday night. And then I hear it again. It could happen any, any moment. We expect it to be tonight. It, it kind of jacks you up just a little bit, even here, miles away where there's no actual threat at this time, even though there is a sense of foreboding of what will this mean for the world? I want to tap into that a little bit so that we can appreciate the action of what God commanded Joshua to lead his people in doing. We don't see all the mass of the people particularly marching as the troops and the ark do, but perhaps they encircle the city. There's surely enough. And so, in a sense, they're watching this ceremony taking place between the people and the walls and the people of Jericho. What's the craziest thing 
God has asked you to do. If you can't think of it at once, ponder it this week. What's the craziest thing God has asked you to do? And how old is it? Is it like like five years ago? God's in the crazy request business. We've got to expect him to speak to us. And it may, it may just sound a little irregular, unusual, not something we would dream up on our own. Maybe God asking us to step, step outside our comfort zone or what is not normal, as we would put it, or think of it. Crazy is a matter of viewpoint. The one who looks crazy depends on your perspective. You might say, who will look crazy when Jesus returns in all of his glory? Is any of us crazy enough to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies? That's pretty crazy. To forgive those who wrong us? Yeah, that's out of the ordinary. To pray for those who hate us? To bless those who curse us? Those are all from Jesus' words when people clamored to follow him. And he said, if you would like to be my disciple, here, here are the rules of engagement. This is what my disciples do. This is what it's like. And, and it's not me you're following, he said. You're following my Father in heaven. Read it. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 35, right from Jesus. Is it crazier than James chapter 1? Consider it all joy when we fall into all sorts of trials. That's kind of crazy. I don't think we do that as a rule. I don't see people whooping it up when things are really going wrong. Yeah, it really takes a different outlook, doesn't it? But are these not occasions when God is kind of asking us to do something crazy? Or what about Paul in Philippians 2 when he asked us to humbly treat others as more important than ourselves? I'm not hearing that in commercials. I'm not seeing that depicted in most superhero movies where people are just shot and killed and death is like so easy. Really, the culture of superhero movies is that life is cheap. You know, these are not the only crazy things in the New Testament spoken by the apostles because it was spoken by Jesus, the Lord. And what about prophetic and crazy that God should 
call him to die an ignoble, dishonorable, shameful death on a cross. That's, that's the way God does it. Nobody would expect that. Not one. It's still and should be hard for us to grapple with that if we knew what a, what a horrible, shaming thing to die on a cross is. No Roman citizen, no Roman citizen, and by the way, that was the elite upper class. No Roman citizen would ever be subjected to death on a cross. Death on a cross is for slaves who have no rights, who are not, in a sense, at least in the eyes of the law and the culture, full-fledged human beings. But over such a shameful thing, he rose from the dead, conquering death, and in conquering death, conquering every other foe and all other opposition. God's ways are not our ways. And here in Joshua and across the pages of the Old Testament and New Testament, God is asking us to try it his way. He's saying, try it my way. Try it my way. Last week, we saw at the end of chapter 5, verses 13, 14, and 15, that as Joshua was near, the, near Jericho, he turned and there was a figure. I don't know if he was a shadowy figure, but he was certainly a startling figure. We're not told who it is, but he identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's forces. Shelley told me last week that as she was sitting near me, as I spoke, she was just itching to raise her hand and ask me a question. But she didn't, and that just shows you how age tames the wild spirit. There, there were many times that she would not have shown that restraint to me. And I am grateful for it. But I, you know, I honestly, if she had raised her hand, I would have answered her question. I was a college teacher. I can handle questions from the floor. But she wanted to know, who is this commander-in-chief? Is it an angel or something more? Well, first of all, this figure accepts worship. That's very striking. No angel in Scripture ever accepts worship because that worship is for the Lord, whom an angel, by definition, is a messenger and a servant of Almighty God. So that's one thing we know. Secondly, this mysterious figure says take off your sandals, this ground is holy. Wherever there is holy space, that's the presence of God. So we know that Joshua is in the presence of the Lord. And third, 
if you read on, even as we began reading with verse 2 of chapter 6, there is a continuous narrative. There's not a break. There is the editorial interruption of verse 1, but the conversation continues. Joshua is still speaking to the commander of the Lord's forces as we go in to chapter 6 and resume that conversation in verse 2, and it begins, and the Lord, which Lord is a translation of Hebrew, a very uh, the sacred, ineffable name of God, according to, to the Jewish people. And even to this day, when they, when they write the word G-O-D, they eliminate the O, they just put a hyphen, and it's expression of recognition that they don't deal, talk about, treat God lightly. And so it is that we have here the presence of the Lord himself. Now, we believe in a triune God, and we believe the Father and the Spirit and the Son. And so all manifestations of any kind in contact with humans um, where there is some kind of a visible res representation we attribute to the third member of the triune God, the Son. And so this we would classify as a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord to Joshua who later we regard as Jesus. Does that make sense? So, in Joshua 6, the Lord gives Joshua his way. He gives him his technique, his timetable, and his terms. And I want to just quickly look at his technique, his timetable, and his terms. His technique is this march of faith that really demonstrates that God is working through this and it is not just the power of the people, it is the power of the God of the people. And as I said, they do not even, they're not to give, make a peep for all six days and then the seven laps of the seventh day, which is kind of, counterintuitive to the way we might think it should go, but this is a symbolic siege with the ark as the focal point. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 30, he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. In other words, faith is our response, um, our interaction with what God is doing. And that's very, very important to, to recognize. So faith is really central to what is happening here in the march of the mighty warriors and uh, the ark and the ceremonial nature of it. Faith is essential to our walk with Christ. It's an action we can talk about it as a noun, like it's a body of doctrine. And we can say that's, that's the faith, right? But when, 
when we are exercising, and that's why I like to use that word exercise, because what we are doing is we are believing God's words. We are believing the world that is appreciated because God has revealed things to us through his word. And through his word and through the stories as well, as well as what is stated and instructed. So we, we learn through actual instruction, as we do in Paul's letters, and then we learn through depiction, through reading the accounts of how God interacted with his people. And in all these cases, when God is an influence that we respect and we let influence us, shape the way we think, way we talk, way we act, that's faith. That's faith. And if a person believes that God is speaking to her or to him, and it is within the spirit and the nature of what we know of, of God from and through Jesus Christ, the, 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 the pinnacle of the revelation of God. You know, if you had a question of who God is, you stand on what you know of Jesus. And that's why it's so important to read your Gospels. Understand, reflect on what was happening in the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But you can just say, well, what would Jesus do? And see if that lines up with what God is maybe nudging you to do his way and not necessarily our encrusted way which we gather and gain from our culture. Because God, sometimes God, and we should expect God to cause us to act in ways that are in character with what he would do and not our own nature or upbringing or parents unless our parents were followers of Jesus Christ, or our friends, or our influences, or the things on TV, or in music, or all the other things that create this culture that sustains itself. We are to be different. We are to be unique. And people should be able to say, you are different. Why are you the way you are? And you would say, um, I'm following God's way, as we know through Jesus Christ and his word. So my technique, my timetable, we let our timing get in the way sometimes of God's timing. And this march of faith teaches patience, which is a spiritual gift. Think about that. Patience is a manifestation of faith. Patience is an indication of how much faith you have, how much you really believe that God is in this for you, cares about you, that you're not just adrift in this world. Yeah, you can rejoice, says James, in these, when we fall into these kinds of challenges and difficulties because we can have this solid peace this solid peace, it doesn't mean that we just lay down and give up. 
but we don't go crazy. We don't turn on each other. We don't take it out on other people. We have this peace that we're in the hand of God, and we have a learner's spirit and outlook. What are you trying to teach me through this? How are you trying to strengthen my character and trust in you? You know that the African impala, those beautiful, like gazelles, right? And they are gorgeous. They're majestic creatures. Do you know that when they are at speed and they can run up to between 47 and 57 miles per hour, and then when they leap, they can reach a height of 10 feet and cover 30 feet in a leap. 30 feet in a leap. But do you know if you were to capture one, and God forbid that any of us should have a gazelle for a pet. Some things just are not meant to be. But if you were to find one in a zoo, they, they can be, they'll be in just like a, only a three-foot wall. Three-foot wall. That's all it needs to contain it. And do you know why that is? Because they won't jump if they don't know where they're going to land. And we can be like that sometimes. We can have this majestic ability and power, but if we don't trust the Lord, then we won't leap. Naturally, we won't leap because we don't know where we're going to land, and that's where we trust God. And so, yeah, we, when he says, do it my way, we say, how high, how far? My timetable, my technique, my terms. The word here in verses 17 through 19 is to be devoted. Cherem in Hebrew, it's sometimes translated the ban. It's devoted, it's made holy unto the Lord, and therefore it's off limits. Jericho is completely off limits. God himself has chosen to destroy Jericho completely. And That's hard on my soul, personally, because I have a sensibility about that because God has been so merciful, so loving and forgiving to me that I want to see him somehow redeem this situation as he has redeemed me. But that's not his choice. I don't know if it's the the level of the, the wild times I mean, I mentioned a bit ago that, that Moses taught the people about siege ethics, warfare. We take our comforts, our securities for granted. But the fundamental reason, and it's laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 20, especially verse 18, it says, to rid the land God has given them of all abominable practices that they perform for their gods, that they should not lead my people 
into those practices and those abominable behaviors which are devoted to idols but then reject God, the one true God. In fact, we saw in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, when he named the peoples that they were going to overcome, it was in the name, it said, of the living God because idols are biblically seen as of having no life and no existence. Rahab really, though, represents the alternative, and I'd like to finish on this. If you would turn in your Bible or swipe in your device your way back to Joshua chapter 2, verse 9 and following, listen to this. Rahab says, and she's speaking to the spies at that time, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard. In other words, we all know how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I think what we have to put together here is that Rahab made a decision based on information that they all had. She made a decision to turn to the Lord. She made a decision to go with Israel and worship Israel's God, but no one else did. And perhaps the ceremonial march, could it be that it, it was so, gonna get so intense, you know, like inside they're going, what are they doing? This is driving me crazy. I can't take this anymore. We know who they are. We know he's given the land into their hand. Let's quit this. Let's Let's go out there and turn to their Lord. But they didn't. That's just a hypothesis. But why march seven times? And why a specific reference to Rahab? All but her, all but her is under the ban. And so she surrendered to the Lord. Do it my way, says the Lord. What is God's way? Well, one way that is very significant for us is the way of the cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The way of the cross. This week, I would encourage you as you think of God's way to ponder that cross and what it means for the way we conduct ourselves, identify ourselves, Christianity is, is not just an appendage to what we're already doing. It's a call to a radical way of life, 
of following Jesus Christ. And it's a cross-bearing call. It's a cross-bearing call. We may, we may bristle under that cross, but that's what we're called to bear. And it changes everything about the way we see ourselves and see the world. And it's borne out in our baptism where we are buried to the old life and raised to new, which is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the new power in our lives to live after Christ. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, sometimes it's scary to walk by faith, but as we do, we get stronger. We find you to be a good, good Lord, and we love you for all that you have loved us, given us, changed our past, and set our future. We praise you. We pray that we might live the cruciform life that is ours in Christ to your glory and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.